And let me uh, pray for us as we open the word of the Lord together. God, we do praise you and thank you for a time where we can come and worship you freely, a time where we can come and honor you, a time where we can come and examine your word and see where we need to adjust our lives in light of what you've written there. So God, I just pray that as we consider your word together, Lord, that you would speak by the truth of your word. You would speak by that still, small voice of your spirit. And that you would convict us, you would encourage us, you would move us, that we might fully honor you in every part of our lives. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, for some reason, the month of September can tend to be a month of new beginnings. Oftentimes, we think of January as being that month. We've all decided to make those New Year's resolutions and things like that. But in the life of a church, so often, September is the new January, if you will. And, um, and part of that is because kids have promoted. The fifth graders are now middle schoolers. The eighth graders are now in high school, kindergartners. Now, for everybody moves up. And those college students who've graduated are now in their next phase of life. The lull of summer, which sometimes doesn't feel like much of a lull, has given way to new ministry opportunities and new activities and new programs, new beginnings, things like Sunday youth nights, new classes, new almost everything. And so here in September, I thought we'd take a very brief break from the book of John and really think about some new things in a few different ways. So essentially over the next four weeks, we're gonna be asking one main question and that question is, who's your one? Who's your one? This will be the question that really guides all of our conversations. And as we're looking at this, as we're considering this question, we're thinking about it, leveraging the experience, leveraging some things that the various other folks have pulled together, various other Baptists have, have done. And, and so today, some of the main points we're, we're doing come from some things that J.D. Greer presented to his congregation. And before we dive into our, our, our passage that we're going to look at, and if you have your Bibles and want to open to Matthew chapter 4, that is where we're going to be today. I want us to do a little bit of a word association. I want you to think about what comes to your mind when you think about these words. Politician. What comes to your mind when you think about politician? Maybe it's your favorite politician. Maybe it's your least favorite or most hated politician. But who, I, I know for me, I did not think of that picture when I was thinking politician. But I'm really glad Steve pulled that up. Or what about this? What about a fitness fanatic? You have an image in your mind, and I bet it's that, right? Or what about a millennial? Some of you guys are thinking, I see me in the mirror every day. I am that. Or how's this? The Washington Commanders. Some of you might be thinking, the what? What team is that? Sort of like the Poolsville Indians, right, Glenn? <laughs> so maybe we're thinking, wait, the, the, you were, we might be picturing the big W, or maybe you're picturing the Redskins helmet, and you're thinking, commanders or what? Or what about a veteran? What comes to your mind when you think of a veteran? Maybe it's someone in uniform. Maybe it's a family member or friend. 
Maybe it's someone who's fighting depression or PTSD. Whether or not your mental images match the ones that Steve came up with, we all tend to associate words with pictures. But now let me ask you this. When you think of the word Christian, what comes to your mind? Do you have an image of someone? Is it the face you see in the mirror? Is it that person you highly respect and revere? Maybe you're picturing what you think Jesus might have looked like. Maybe you're thinking someone who has certain characteristics or certain qualities. Someone who is kind. Hopefully that would be a a Christian. Maybe you're picturing someone who is loving. Maybe you're thinking, if you're kind of questioning this whole Christianity thing, maybe you're thinking someone who's narrow-minded, someone who's bigoted, someone who's gracious, someone who's angry, someone who's welcoming. You see, our broader culture has their own pictures, their own mental images, their own thoughts of what they think when they hear Christian. And the question is not so much what what should they think, but what should we be projecting as God's people? Are we truly living out the Christianity that Jesus called his followers to do? But did you know that the very first Christians, those first century Christians, were not called Christians? They didn't call each other Christians. They might have said, hey, brother, hey, sister, but they didn't call themselves that. In fact, it was essentially a term that was used in a derogatory manner. Oh, those Christians, those little Christs. In fact, Acts eleven twenty six, we get the first opportunity to see that. And it says in Antioch, the disciples, there's that word that oftentimes the Christians called themselves. The disciples were first called Christians. In fact, did you know that the Bible only uses the word Christian three times? And yet it uses the word disciple 281 times. Which then kind of begs the question, what is the better term? What should we call ourselves? Christian? Disciple? Andy Stanley and he, he said, I want to suggest to you that changing the primary word we use to describe ourselves lost the clarity that the word disciple conveyed about what a follower of Jesus actually is. Greer and others have suggested that disciple is a far more accurate and compelling description of what it means to follow Jesus. And as we'll see, the concept of disciple exposes the fact that many people who claim to be Christians are not disciples of Jesus. Now, we're not going to get done with all this, and I'm not going to say, hey, we're no longer Christians, we're disciples. No, we're not going to go through that. But I want us just to think, what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ? And where is that difference between being a follower, a true follower, a true disciple, and a Christian. 
So if you have your Bibles and want to open them to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, we're going to look at that. Since Brian already read it, we're not going to read it here. We'll read different segments of this as we go along. But let me just give us a little bit of background, a little bit of historical background, because here Jesus was calling these men. He was pulling people in to be his followers. He was, people often referred to him as a rabbi, and so he would go around and do some teaching. But let me just talk about what it meant to be a disciple of somebody in the first century. You see, all, all Hebrew boys went to Torah school when they were about five years old. And they would go and they would study the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they would memorize all or most of that. Any guys, anybody ready to do that? Anybody ready? To, no, no, nobody. I didn't do that. But then by the age of 10, they all knew the Torah and the best students went on to continue their studies. So if you didn't have a great memory, you just went off to work in the family trade. You went back to the fields. You worked on the farm. You learned this trade. And then for, so five to 10, you're memorizing Torah. 10 to 17, those who were really bright, those who really got it, remained in the Torah school and they continued to learn and grow. They studied the rest of what we would call the Old Testament. And then the brightest and the best at age 17 would have a decision to make. They would have a decision as to whether or not they wanted to follow, become a disciple or a Talmud of a certain rabbi. And so they would go and search and they would see, well, I like how Rabbi Carl says things this way. And I, I like how Rabbi Brian says things this way. And well, Vern, he has this very unique perspective here. And, and then there's Rabbi Ermal and he's got this, I, I really want to sit with this guy. And so a student would go and sit down at the feet of this rabbi and they'd basically say, Rabbi, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi might ask them, not might, but would ask them some questions and would say, well, tell me about this. And, and they would ask them, they basically do a verbal quiz. Tell me what you know about the Torah. Tell me what you know about these things. And then if the, if the rabbi thought, yes, this kid, of course, it's all boys. This boy could be like me someday. He would say, yes, I choose you. You chose me and now I'm choosing you back to be my disciple. And so for several years, these young disciples or this Talmudim would follow their rabbis and they would imitate everything they did. Their goal was to be as like their rabbi as possible in the way they thought, in the way they spoke, in the way they acted, in the way they even walked. And so the brightest students would get to their edge, the end of their theological learning and then choose a rabbi and would follow them for years some of them would become rabbis themselves. But here, this new rabbi that's on the scene in the first century, this new rabbi, this Jesus, is doing things differently. So if you want to take notes, here's where your notes begin. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Look at what it says in Matthew 4, 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
See, in, here in Matthew chapter 4, this new rabbi had been going around teaching, and he had been, he'd been teaching. Some people said he was teaching with authority. He was, people were beginning to take notice, wow, here's this guy, Jesus. And so Jesus walks by the sea, and he pulls out these guys who were fishermen. But think about this. Based on what we can understand from the background and the fact that these guys are fishermen, what does that tell us? What does it tell us about Peter and Andrew? They didn't make the cut when they were kids. Think about that. At age 10, they were not good enough to keep going on. And if they were at age 17, no rabbi wanted them. So Jesus isn't picking the brightest and best students. He's not picking that person with a straight A 4.0. He's picking what some would call the B team. He's, he's choosing the second best, not because they're second best, but he's choosing them because they're willing. This rabbi, this Jesus had chosen them, guys without much potential or personal power. He chose, he, he chose them to follow him, to become like him, to know God like he knew God, to knew, know what he knew and to do what he did and to be filled with his power, not their own great knowledge. John MacArthur writes that God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great politician. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. Jesus chose the B team because his work in them wouldn't come from their abilities, but what he would do through them. See, one of the challenges that people with a lot of talent and ability have is that they would only get in the way. Oh God, you're, you're so blessed to have me on your team because look at all these gifts that I have. I can do this so great, God, aren't you happy? And yet when people are coming, when they have no gifts, when they have no abilities, they have no perceived strength, they don't, they realize, we realize, oh, we just, ah, I've got nothing, God. And yet why do you want me? God wants to use you and your family at your workplace, at your school. And so we need to stop making excuses that we're not able he doesn't need our ability. He requires our availability. So then the question becomes, have you made yourself available to him? I think these initial disciples jumped at the chance to follow Jesus because they had been overlooked as kids. This new rabbi was gaining a reputation and he was giving them a chance and they were willing to follow so as we see in this passage, not only does Jesus choose the willing, but Jesus chose us. We didn't choose him. Jesus chose us. Look at what it says in Matthew 4.19, the very, just one part of that. Matthew writes, and he said to them, follow me. See, as I mentioned before, the normal way all this went down 
the best in the class, the brightest, they would graduate and then they would find a rabbi and sit at his feet and say, Rabbi, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi would say, okay, I choose you back. There was this initiation by the student and this response by the teacher. But Jesus turns things around so completely. He takes the process back even further. These guys weren't looking for him. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They weren't looking for a teacher. They weren't looking for a rabbi because they had been left over. They had gone on to their careers and they figured the best I can do is catch fish. And Jesus sees them and he says, I want you. He called out men who were available, who were willing to follow. We could also think about it from a position of hopelessness. Think about this. If these guys had aspirations for ministry, aspirations to be a part of that religious leadership, then they had, been, they had no chance of moving on. What if they had a heart for God but just didn't have the mind to remember every jot and tittle of Hebrew? They were just too late. Second best, you go catch fish. You go farm. You go be a carpenter. You go be an arborist. You go do whatever it is. You just don't do this. And yet Jesus called his disciples because he wanted them. He wanted them. And I want you to let that sink in for a brief moment. He called you and me into a relationship with him because he wanted you. He wanted you. So often, you know, we've used the term you know, about 40 years ago, the Willow Creek Church coined this phrase that, where they basically said, we're, we're a seeker-oriented church. The problem is there are no seekers. We're really not seeking God. We're seeking answers. We're seeking something, some meaning. But ultimately, it's God who's saying, I want you. Come, learn, check it out. John chapter 15, verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So once chosen, we learn next that our primary calling is to be with him. Let's think about that verse we looked at just a moment ago or just a few minutes ago in Matthew 4, 19. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. He didn't say, hey, guys, we're going to go all over the Galilee region. We're going to go all the way down to Judea. We're going to even go through Samaria. We're going to go over to the Decapolis. We're going to get on some boats. We're going to do all these things. He didn't say, guys, get ready for this. He said, I want you to follow me. His primary call is not to do something. <laughs> it's to be like him and to become like him. We have to know him. And in order to know him, we have to know his word. We have to understand this because I believe God has revealed himself in his word. And so this must be in here and in here. We need this 
in our minds and in our hearts in order to truly understand. And that's how we can best, I think, be with Jesus. Remember, the goal of a disciple is to be like their rabbi. One of the best compliments a disciple could have, one of the best compliments a follower could have of a rabbi is that the dust of the rabbi was all over you. Everything your, your rabbi walked through is on you. And it's not to say you need a bath, but it means you are looking like your rabbi. Jesus wanted his disciples, and I think he wants us to follow him so closely that we pick up his mannerisms, that we understand the way he thinks. We begin to see other people through his eyes. Imagine how differently that would be from how we do it. Our natural bent, how we want to say, oh, uh, politically, whatever this, and oh, that. If we saw people the way that Jesus truly did, how different would we act? But you see, for these first disciples, they had Jesus right there. For about three years, they could just follow him. They could trust, hey, Jesus, are we going here? If you've, I, I mentioned in the midweek email that in that little Dear Family letter, the, the Chosen series. And if you've not had a chance to watch it, check it out. It's, it's, it's not totally biblical, but it's very interesting the way that these guys, the way the author have taken the context of the first century and taken scripture and tried to help us understand how this got lived out. In fact, this scene of watching Peter and Andrew, James and John get called to be Jesus' disciples is fascinating when you consider what the backstory might have been. But they were there. They got to watch Jesus, watch how he stepped. Maybe their strut became like his strut. I don't think Jesus had a strut. But maybe, and they began to use words like Jesus used, and they began to interact with people like Jesus interacted. And sometimes I bet it was a bit tenuous because Jesus would do things differently than they did. It was easier, maybe, for them. But the question is, how do we do that? We don't have Jesus standing right here. There are several ways I think that we can do that. And one is this time together, our Sunday morning time of worship. You see, we're not gathered here to listen to me or Ermal or Andrew or whoever might preach. This, I hope that you realize this isn't why we're here. And I hope you realize it's not about me. We do this in order to understand what God has placed in his word. We, we do this in order to worship God for who he is and to be in amazement of his glory and then to align ourselves with him. And we get to do that, worshiping him with one another. So this togetherness has something to do with our development, our growth as disciples. Because frankly, if I'm sitting close to Pete and I watch how Pete responds to God, then wow, he's got a little bit different personality and perspective than I do. Wow, I I need to let let a little bit of Pete's understanding of Jesus rub off on me. And and I I need a a little bit of of Anne's understanding of Jesus rub off on me. And I I need to gain a little bit of Zach's perspective on Jesus and, and let it rub off on me. We need this time together. And I hope you value that. And I want to just talk to you guys who who are watching at home. If you're watching at home because you're sick or 
there's transportation issues, transportation, maybe we can help overcome that. But if you're there because you're sick or on vacation, I'm glad you're there. I'm glad we have this medium to be able to allow you to join in from wherever you can. But if you're joining in at home because it's convenient, because frankly, you don't like people, you don't want to get up and get dressed and be around us, then I want to challenge you to step up. Jesus called you to be his follower, and it will take you into uncomfortable places, and maybe that's even a sanctuary of Poolsville Baptist Church. And I know that we, at different times, have had people watching from other states, and I'm glad you're there. But if this is the church you're watching from another state, go find a good church. And if you don't know where to look, send me an email, and I'll help you find something. But you, we need each other. You need to be in fellowship with somebody. God didn't call us to do this alone. He called us to be with one another. But in addition to our Sunday morning time, I think this is a great time for us to worship and, and get to know what Jesus is like and begin to walk like Jesus walks because of the different levels of maturity that we have around us. But we also have weekly Bible studies. And right now, you know, there are two adult Bible studies. There's one, if you're feeling like, man, I need to be a little bit more evangelistic, I need to reach my neighbors, then you need to jump in on Vern and, and uh, Gabriel's class, the engagement project. And if you're thinking like, oh, man, I'm a little bit too religious, I'm a little bit too rigid in my walk, then maybe you need to jump in with Carl on the Beatitudes. B, blessed are, is what the Beatitudes all start with. Be the follower that Jesus is calling you to be. And for those of you guys who are in high school and middle school and elementary school, we've got classes for everybody. And I want to just challenge us. For those of you who may not be joining in on a class yet, I would challenge you that your walk with Christ may require more than an hour on a Sunday morning in an uncomfortable pew. Maybe you need to step up. But beyond that, there's the Monday night, well, there's Sunday night youth this is an opportunity to go deeper and have some fun together and challenge each other to be more like Christ because who knows what it's like to be in middle school and high school better than middle and high schoolers. I know Pastor Aramal hasn't been in, in middle or high school for a few years. And if I show up, it's been even longer. But we can inspire one another and challenge each other with the word of God. But then I also want to just encourage you, ladies, on Monday nights, there's that community Bible study. What a joyous time to be able to gather, to pray, to study the word together, to encourage one another. And then those who want to go really, really deep, who might have been those graduates in, uh, in, the, in the Talmud school, you can join in on, on Wednesday mornings at 930 and jump in on the sisters' Bible study as they... Go, I think right now they're going from dust to glory, from Genesis to Revelation as they study the entire word of God with R.C. Sproul. But in addition to those things, maybe, maybe those opportunities aren't enough for you. Maybe they're, maybe they're too rigid or maybe you're serving in a class and you feel like, well, how do I get? I mean, teachers often get more out of a class than the students do and it's just a fact of life. 
But what if you're thinking, I want some other encouragement? Well, maybe it's an opportunity for you to start a home-based discipleship group. There's nothing stopping us from just saying, hey, friends, let's get together. Let's pray for one another. Maybe you take your, your notes out from Sunday morning and, and you read over that passage and think, well, what does this say? How is, you know, Pastor Joel had this kind of thought on this, but what if we look at it this way? Or maybe you take a book of the Bible and you just read, study it together for a few, you know, 20, 30 minutes. There are so many things that you can do. And then beyond that, there's your own personal Bible study. There's our own time of reading the word of God. Are you taking time to spend time with the Lord, reading, meditating, even memorizing his words? Are you ingesting good books that, are, that will encourage you in your walk? There's a, a bunch of good books in the back. I was so encouraged last week when, when um, one of our high schoolers came up to me and, and she's like, hey, I saw this book out there, Evangelism as Exiles, and, and I know where her heart is. She really wants to reach out for, for her, her classmates. And she's like, can I take this? And I'm like, yeah, go ahead. I mean, the books out there are basically for donations. So if you don't have money to stick in the little box, but there are some good books there. Books that lead you to delighting in Christ, understanding what it was like in the first century. Books that help you understand how to have a heart for the world around us. But he has given us his word and our goal is, is to get it inside of us so that it dominates our thinking and our behavior. So think about this for a second. If your classmates, your colleagues, your neighbors... If they could open your brain, they kind of take off part of your skull and open it and see your thoughts. What would ooze out? Or if, if a, comi a, a, a comic strip writer could do the little bubble cloud, you know what? It, and they said, this is what your thoughts look like. Where is Jesus in that? Are you trying to be like him? Or are your thoughts dominated by other things? When they look at our lives, do they see Jesus? Is he rubbing off on us? Is his dust kicking up on us? So in this passage, we're learning that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. Secondly, he is the one who does the choosing. And, and his invitation to follow him is an invitation to be with him, which means we need to be in his word and in fellowship with others. But Next, we, in order to follow him, we have to leave all. Look at what it says when James and John left, were given this invitation. Matthew 4, 22, it says, Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. You see, a couple of verses earlier, when Peter and Andrew needed to follow Jesus, all they left was their boat. They left their fish there. They, they just followed. But James and John left their boat and their father because they were working together. So I, I want to ask us this question. Why did the author, why did Matthew identify these two things, boat and father, that these guys left them? What does what a boat represent? A boat represents a livelihood. It represents a career. It represents a job. The father, I think he represents our most significant relationships. And I think the point is that to, follow, to truly follow Jesus, we have to be willing to leave both. He has to take precedent over both of those things. 
Now, realistically, here in America, we're not going to run into too many situations where we'll have to change our jobs because we're a follower of Jesus or we'll have to lose our relationship with our parents. There are, are some people around the world or, who are that way. I've talked with Eric Bass on multiple occasions about people he's run into in their country where they're serving, where they're at risk. There's a husband who is a, a Christian. His wife just thinks he's a bad Muslim. At least that's what he thinks. He hasn't told her because if he tells her his job is at stake, his marriage is at stake, it's a risk he may have to take. J.D. Greer, when he was talking to his congregation, tells a story about a woman in the Middle East who became convinced of her need of a Savior. And, and so she received Jesus Christ as her Savior she trusted him. She went public by getting baptized. And then, not too long after that, her family found out. Her family found out that she had become a Christian. And so they took her and they put her in her room and they said, you must renounce this new faith. And she said, I can't do that. I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I believe in him. I'm his and he is mine. I'm not going to renounce it. Or like Martin Luther, here I stand. And so they locked her in her room and, and the father and brother were looking at ways that they could kill her because in their culture, it was more honorable to kill her than, the, than to let her live. She was scared. She said that night when they locked her in her room and a family emergency came up, I wonder who orchestrated this. The sister-in-law, her sister-in-law had just gone into labor prematurely. So the entire family rushed out of the house to go to the hospital to be with the sister-in-law, leaving her alone. And so she said, if I don't get out of here, I'm gonna be dead. And so she broke out of her room, broke out of her house and went back to the missionaries who led her to Christ. And she said, you need to help me. I need to get out of here. And so over the next year, they worked together to get her refugee status and to be able to come here to the United States. And now she's a part of a church in North Carolina. It cost her her family. It cost her, her potentially her livelihood and what she knew. Is it willing to follow Jesus if you have an eternity with him? As I said, most of us won't have that kind of experience, but some of us will. The point is that we must be willing to leave our families, leave our traditions, leave those relationships that are most dear to us because I think following Jesus is worth it. You may not, we may not have to change our careers, but maybe God will encourage you to transfer your job to be a part of a church plant or maybe to go overseas to work with a missionary who's there and be sort of bivocational. Maybe he'll ask you to leave your job and carry the gospel to another country. And for a lot of us, it won't be that dramatic. Maybe we'll just have to go public at, at work. Let people know, yes, I am a follower of Christ. And look for beautiful, organic ways to talk about Jesus. I would guess that over the next couple of years, as, G, as these disciples, they experienced varying degrees of discomfort 
They were forced out of their comfort zones as they followed Jesus. And I think we must be willing to leave what is comfortable for the places where commitment to Jesus is preeminent. He must take first place. The disciples left everything immediately and followed Jesus, which brings us to one last thing that we need to consider. And that is that he commands us in following him, he commands us to spiritually reproduce. He didn't just follow them. Follow, he didn't call these guys just to follow him so he could have a posse, so he could have a group, so he could have a squad. He followed, he called them to follow him so that they could reproduce spiritually. Look at what it says in, four, in Matthew 4.19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus means you subject everything in your life to his lordship, that we forsake all that he has prohibited and pursue all that he has prescribed. And just like he was a fisher of men, his followers would become fishers of men. And this is an essential part of being a disciple. It's not something that just a couple of us do. Being fishers of men Reproducing spiritually is something that every follower of Christ should do. There is no such thing as a non-reproducing Christian. If we're not bearing fruit, we might have to ask ourselves, am I a Christian at all? How do we prove that we're a disciple? By bearing fruit. John 15, 8 said this, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus tells his disciples how to bear fruit in his famous great commission when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of of the age. One of the things, sometimes we look at that and we think we have to, we have to, um, we have to teach and, and instruct, we have to baptize, all these things. But notice all of those things, in fact, in Greek, all of those things hang on the one command. What is the one command in that passage? Steve, can you bring that up for a moment? What is the one command? This is actually two-part. Go and Make disciples. How do we make disciples? We teach, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus summarized his ministry in Luke 19 by saying, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. If we are his disciples, that's how we'll summarize our lives too, to make a difference, to, to make disciples. And essentially, well, what is, being, what is making disciples? What is that? And essentially saying, hey, buddy, friend, follow me as I seek to follow Christ. And we get to do it with the, with the help of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus promised that he would be with us. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman said, when, the ma when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's 
method. God's plan for discipleship is not something. We don't need another program. We don't need another this thing and that thing. And we need people. His plan is someone. His plan is you and me. You and I are God's method. He has called us to be disciples who make disciples. And disciple making is simply teaching someone to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, Jesus has promised to help us. So it really comes down to the question that we started with. Who is your one? Who is that one person, if only one? Who is that one person that you would, that God is leading you to disciple? Maybe we should be asking God to help us identify one person that we can, by the, with the help of the Holy Spirit, bring to faith in, in Jesus Christ this year. As you've noticed, your bulletins are overfull, overflowing with stuff. There's two things that I want you to be aware of. One is this prayer guide, and it really asks the question, who is your one? And if you'll flip through it, if you open to the first day, it's a 30-day it's prayer guide. And the whole idea behind this is, is for maybe, maybe as, as you're sitting here, you're thinking, God has laid this person on my mind. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your brother or sister. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your coworker. You'll notice blanks all over this prayer journal. And the idea is maybe you go through, not maybe, the idea is you go through and each day write that person's name. Only one person. Write that person's name there and pray for 30 days straight for that person, that God would give you opportunities to make disciples with that person. It's designed to focus our prayers. As I said, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a classmate, maybe it's a coworker, a friend or family member. But will you, will we take time daily to pray just for a few minutes for this person for the next 30 days. Pray for opportunities to connect. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And here's the encouraging part. We don't have to save anyone. Jesus does that. Jesus, remember, it's ultimately Jesus who is calling people into a relationship with him. So we just become his mouthpiece. Sort of like the, the um, oh, what's the word? Those criers or the, the people who would call out and say, hey, the king, the herald, that's what it is, the herald. The, the, back in, in medieval era, the herald would go out and proclaim the king's message wherever he would go. That's really what our job becomes. Praying that God would lead us to that person that needs to hear the message. Can you imagine what it would look like if each of us, maybe there's, I don't know, 80 of us here today, what would happen in the next year if each of us took this seriously and really began to pray for the next 30 days for this one person? And then for the next 11 months, God, help me have an opportunity to meet this person. Give me an opportunity to talk to them at the mailbox or to invite them over for dinner. Give me an opportunity, I pray. And maybe you already have someone on your mind. Maybe God has already said, hey, this person, I want you to pray for this person. Here's, let me challenge you to do this. You've got this little bookmark in there. Here's a really cool thing you can do. You can rip off this, right? And write that person's name on here. 
It has this who's your one on one side and write their name on this side. This part you keep, stick it in your Bible so that, oh, every day when you're sitting with Jesus and you're reading your Bible and you're praying through this for that person, they're in your bookmark and you're reading about that. But here's what I want you to do with this. If God has already laid someone in your mind, then on your way back, on your way out the door, right behind Carolyn is an offering box. I want to challenge you to put someone's name on this thing and put it in the offering box. And then on Wednesdays, when we gather here to pray, we'll take these out and we'll divide those up among all those who come and you're all welcome. There's only about 10 of us who usually show up, but everybody's welcome to come at seven o'clock on Wednesdays. We'll pray for these. So guess what? We're not in this alone. We're not in this by ourselves. It's some, we get to do this together. So can you do this? Can you pray for someone for 30 days? Can you pray that God would use you to lead that person to Christ? But there's one last thing I think we need to remember, and that is in order to be a disciple maker, you have to be a disciple first. See, Jesus left everything for you. He willingly laid aside his glory so that you and I could be redeemed. He willingly allowed his body to be broken and pierced on a cross, paying the debt of your sin and mine. So the question is, have you responded to his call on your life? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in him? And if you haven't, catch me afterwards or let's get a cup of coffee this week and let's talk. I'd love to open the word of God with you and help you understand. But the question, in order to be a disciple, you have to respond to him first. Will you respond to him today? Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to consider your word together. Lord, thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives to make disciples. Lord, I pray over the next month as we pray for those friends, family members, classmates, coworkers, neighbors, Lord, that you would give us a, a deep and abiding conviction to be people who would make disciples. Lead us, we pray, in Christ's name.